Welcome to Embedding the Future of Finance, the podcast about the invisible layer of financial technology that companies use to innovate, drive growth, and most importantly, create better and longer-lasting customer relationships. We're talking about embedded finance, of course. Let's dive in. All right, welcome everybody to today's episode. I'm your host, Jay Sailing. I'm on the marketing team here at Alvier, and I'm excited to dive into some cool topics today. So we are going to talk about kind of what's happening in the macro crypto environment. What does that mean for companies looking to add it to their strategy and the general approach to using crypto as a driver to create more value for your customers? We got a few people on the panel today, and I'll kick it off to Alvier co-founder and CEO, Yuval Brisker. Hey, Yuval. Hey, Jay. How's it going? Doing great, thanks. How are you? Fantastic. I'm uh, delighted to have my co-founder, Pedro Silva, who is also our COO and CTO with us here today, as well as Aaron Cruz, who heads our crypto and blockchain division. And maybe uh, you can tell us a little bit about yourself, Aaron. Sure. I grew up in the United States in Des Moines, Iowa. And then a second that I could, I left Des Moines, Iowa, and I actually lived in China for about nine years, which is where I started working in crypto full time. And that was a pretty wild place to be, China, working in crypto, you know, five, six years ago. And from there, I got more and more involved, deeper and deeper down the rabbit hole, working across institutional products, retail products, different segments of the market, and eventually found myself here at Alvier, where we're building embedded finance products and adding crypto into the mix. Right. I mean, we see the potential of cryptocurrencies and the blockchain and NFTs as a real value builder for some of our customers or for most of our customers. And this is the beginning of a journey. So we know where we're starting, but if we don't know where it's actually going to end, we know that there's actually value that can be created. How do you interpret what's happening right now starting with the Terra Luna thing, and then now into Celsius and the impact that it's had on the valuations of Bitcoin and Ethereum and other cryptocurrencies, but generally on the confidence that people have in the future of this market. I think this is a pretty natural, albeit painful, progression to building new asset classes, to building new markets. And if anybody thought 19.5% was stable with Luna or UST, you're seeing the people that took those risks get hurt by those risks. And you're seeing the people who avoided those risks and tried to build more sustainably survive and continue to thrive. And so I think it's really terrible when these kinds of blowups happen, but it's not altogether unexpected. And we've seen this happen in previous iterations of this bull market, bear market cycle with cryptocurrency. And if we're heading into crypto winter or a bear market or whatnot, that's really the time where innovation and strong companies are built. Many of the names that we're currently talking about today were founded in or launched their main products in the last crypto bear market. So it doesn't deter me any. I've been through this before, and it actually makes me sit here and go, there's so much more space, so much more room for us to innovate and do things when you're not under that constant bull market pressure. Well, I wanted to get Pedro's perspective on it as well. You know, with Aaron's help and with Will Robinson's help, you really look a lot into this market for our purposes. So what's your reflection on what you're seeing today? 
Well, great to be here. As we mentioned also in our, our last podcast in this matter, for us, the most important thing is really, Aaron mentioned the sustainability of some of the partners was just not there. And the stability is really something that we value for our clients. Because of course, as providers of embedded finance, we're not only providing that service to our clients, but they are providing that service to their clients. I really think that these cycles, not only in crypto, but in all the other areas, uh, whenever a bubble kind of bursts or a recession comes, it's always the strongest companies that had sound business models and true revenue and were providing real potential and products of value to their customers that will survive and thrive. And all the other ones will really get cleaned up. So the way we see it here at Alvier is it just assures us that we are on the right path to do this because we are not going to put our customers at risk. As such, we will only choose market uh, players that really can provide that stability and credibility and sustainability of a business model that will not put us at risk or endanger our clients or our clients' clients. Yeah, I think about it in sort of perspective of the 2000-2001.com crash. We saw a lot of new technology emerge in the late 1990s, a lot of enthusiasm and excitement about it, and a lot of people jumping in, a lot of new products, a lot of new uh, investors, a lot of enthusiasm that was kind of unbridled in a way. I think he called it a rational exuberance at the time. It was uh, Alan Greenspan, who was the head of the Federal Reserve. And as somebody who lived through that period and saw the dynamics there, it kind of reminds me of the same thing. You know, a lot of excitement, a lot of ups and downs, a lot of turbulence, a lot of new people jumping in. And the result was, you know, a huge rise and then a huge fall that took a long, long time to recover. So I see a lot of that in this particular moment. Aaron? Yeah, you made this analogy to the dot-com era, and I think it's fairly appropriate, actually, I would just also point out that the dot-com bust, you know, people lampooned sites like pets.com that thought the internet was going to change how people consumed or bought things for their pets. And the online pet industry, like for food and toys and all that stuff, was $123 billion in the U.S. last year. So wrong? No. Early? Probably. And I feel there's a lot of analogies to that in crypto where people are going, haha, that project didn't work. Yeah, maybe it didn't work this time, and maybe it wasn't done correctly or whatnot, but that doesn't invalidate the thesis for me. Yeah, I think that when you look at um, technology in general, you see many different layers of execution. And some of those sort of outwardly facing layers that go to the general public consumption tend to be more volatile and more speculative. But the question to me is, where do you see the real ultimate value of what's being built? Let's face it, some of the brightest people in the planet are thinking about this and building technology around it. So how do you separate the wheat from the chaff as somebody who comes from Iowa? Wheat is Kansas. No, we do winter wheat, like soft winter, reds. That's an Iowa thing. <laughs> I think how do you separate winning ideas from losing ideas I mean, for winning ideas, obviously, there's a big team piece to this, and Pedro mentioned this before, but picking the right partners is where all of this starts. And 
on that level is not just rushing something to market because other people have it, but really figuring out how it works, fitting it into what we do at Alvier, and making sure that our clients are going to get the kind of service that they need to make this function for them. So that might change from sector to sector or from product to product, but you can't really vary off of those principles. You'll know the chaff when it doesn't work. But I think beyond just that kind of core principle is finding ways where value really accrues down the chain to users. And you know, a really good example of this one that has got a lot of column inches on crypto land is with remittances, with payments, and kind of the finality of those types of products using a blockchain as the underlying tech instead of going through the longer, more expensive traditional routes. And if we can bring remittance costs down from 16.5% of the transaction to 10 or to 5, that value accrues to places where it is most needed. And that's a big change for the way that finance works today. So I think people who will be tuning into this podcast will come with a question in their mind. Where is the future going <laughs> on this? I would split this into two separate mental model groups. There's the segment where there are brand new products that have never been envisioned before. There are brand new applications where it's completely different than what has ever been done before. I would say like just kind of the first mental model is like things that are brand new. The second one is it's the way we've been doing things, but a nearer application of a new technology. So there are some types of products where we're just layering a new technology to make the product work better. And then there are other things where it's a brand new product. So maybe starting with the near example of application of a technology, I would say even interbank payments, we use the example of remittances already, but using the base layer of a blockchain to transfer value from one spot to another quickly and without having to trust the counterparty to actually deliver. Being able to verify for yourself by looking at the blockchain and going, yep, the money is there and it's there for real. It's not pending and it gets reversed and I have to make sure I'm covered for the credit card fraud or whatever. It's there. And you can see how that level of technology has a very cool application to things like remittances or payments, where you're a company that's dealing with lots of fraud, and then you go, actually, I can solve some of these problems by using a blockchain as the underlying tech. So those are in that category of it's a currently known problem, and this technology just kind of plugs into an existing thing. On the other end of the spectrum, you know, and all of these products probably fit, like everything in crypto blockchain probably fits somewhere along the spectrum. On the other end are things that are really novel, you know, really out there novel ideas. And these can go anywhere from really, really technical things. As an example, I would say automated market makers, which are a crypto native invention, so to speak, all the way to things like NFTs. And you see a lot of brands engaging on NFTs today. And some of them know what they're doing. Most of them don't. And you look at NFTs and you think, well, what am I buying a picture for? People make this meme of right-click, save as. I think they're really missing fundamentally what this technology enables, which is ownership of creativity. In, and on, in the internet age, you know, it's creative content on the internet that can actually be verifiably owned. And I think that's something that's really disruptive. And what we need to do now is find a way to take this really 
crazy out there brand new product and find a way to fit it into the problems that brands or users have now. And so those are kind of the two mental models that I apply to thinking about the future. If I had to make one prognostication, I would say we will see the payments part of it, that on-chain part of it, change the way that banks do business with each other over the next six to 12 months. So you think it's really in the infrastructure layer on that level, and then we don't really know how the evolution of the consumer application is going to evolve in a sense with a strong potential for the NFT, which kind of came in as an almost like an afterthought to the whole revolution, but may end up being the thing that is the most valuable ultimately in a creative world. How do you see that, Pedro, impacting our strategy? Great question, Yuval. And going back a little bit on the value side, because I think that that's where the strategy and the technology that we want to build really needs to be centered at. Now, one thing is, is it about buying Bitcoin? Well, there's a number of options to buy Bitcoin in the market, right? We could say that it's an additive function to our platform, but essentially then you go into one of the biggest consumer mind objections, which is that's just a casino. It's just volatility. I'm going to buy today. Tomorrow it's worth half. Two days later, it's worth double, right? That being said, it's a critical infrastructural need in terms of the regulatory uh, side, for example, who has the custody of those assets? Who are they auditable? And how do I transfer assets? So that's kind of going back to what Aaron was saying, sort of the uh, infrastructural, let's do something on top of what already exists and it's incremental to it. When we talk about the new things and the brand new novel things, that's where we always need to be very, you know, attentive to what is going on out there. And when we talk specifically about NFTs, a number of our clients, especially when they want to issue sort of collectible items and they own the brand or image management of very desirable influencer, for example, in the market, those are very clear cases to NFTs. Let's make them unique. Let's make the ownership unequivocal to that person, and that's a collectible item. But if you think about the NFT technology, essentially, you know, and now, of course, my grassroots of technology really start, my mind keeps going. Essentially, what an NFT is, is obviously an asset on the blockchain with sort of a set of metadata that essentially is a link to where is that image stored so that I can view it. When you start thinking about the concept of metadata inside these assets, what else can you store there? If it's a URL, what could it go to? Could it be a contract that is signed between two customers, for example, and the uniqueness of that contract? I'm talking about a legal contract. Just as an idea, I think that we at Alvier are always thinking, and this was obviously just an example, but we are Alvier is always thinking what can we do with this technology or with that kind of the idea of that technology to build technology on top of it, our own technology, to bring that essential value to the end customers? My question is to you, Aaron, is what is the focus for people who are thinking about being involved in this market? You know, crypto has been developing for a number of years. One thing that is quite interesting about it is it started off pure retail, purely peer-to-peer. -peer. There weren't companies involved. Everybody was trashing Bitcoin every other weekend. 
when it was $50 and then $450, then it crashed. And you know, like 2015, the Financial Times said, we're going to call this the end of Bitcoin. And so I always get a really good kick out of those predictions that it's over or it hasn't done anything in the last two years, because I think it's looking at the wrong timescale. For crypto specifically, the first decade even of crypto was reaching a point where institutions cared at all. And we finally reached that point, and it's changing the way that things are done. MasterCard and Visa are exploring, are currently using blockchains to settle transactions. Banks are using it. Every big bank, every big financial institution has started looking at this. I think I saw a survey from Deloitte that said something like 83% of the CEOs or C-suite of fintech companies reported that their competitors, their partners, their suppliers were exploring crypto and blockchain. And so that probably looks like a compression of the timescales that we care about. If it was 10 years or 12 years to get the point for institutions to care, when institutions start coming in, when companies start coming in, when enterprises start coming in, when the sheer amount of talent that has moved into this industry over the last two years enters in, it starts moving faster. And this is why if we head into a bear market or it stays particularly crypto winter again, I feel absolutely no fear about that. Because with just the incredible amount of money, talent, companies, enterprises in this space, these problems are going to get solved. Value is going to make it to users. When you look at the foundations of kind of what we do here at Alvier and what embedded finance does for the companies who choose to use it, is to ultimately create better experiences for their customers and to create longer relationships with their customers. And it's very obvious to see those connections when you look at bank accounts, card issuing, global payments. But when you layer in crypto, I think sometimes it can be hard for people to really paint that linear picture between product and value. Talk about some practical applications. And you know we talk some remittances, but some different practical applications that companies can look at as value when they adopt crypto or blockchain technology. So thanks, Jay. I'm going to start and then hand it over to Aaron. For example, do you want to tell a user that, you know, why don't you go buy some USDC and go stake it over there in that platform? By the way, you need to install a wallet over there. Don't lose those private keys and don't worry, you're going to get 5% off it. That's one way of putting it that is very complicated. But if you say to the customer, would you like a rewards account that is giving you 3% a year? Well, that I understand. So I don't want to say dumb it down to the consumer, but as this mindset and knowledge around everything that is happening here in this world, in crypto land, evolves, you have to show the value to those customers. And remittances, great example that you gave. Okay, I go to one, my normal provider is going to take 10% and it's only there two days from now. I go to this provider, cost me a buck and it's already there, right? So it's about using that infrastructure and technology in a way that people understand and translating it to their everyday's lives. You know, I am shockingly old enough to remember a time where I had to ride my bicycle to the local library to get on the internet. And if you think of just the distribution of access to technology, it does almost always start higher up a value chain. And I think we see this happening right now with crypto and blockchain, 
when I have worked in larger trading firms and they're saying, hey, we did this order for you. You have to pay us dollars now. Someone says, well, I can give you a wire, I can do an ACH, or I could send you crypto like dollars on a blockchain. Invariably, the answer is, dude, just send it to me on the blockchain. Don't send me a wire. Don't send me an ACH. It's too slow, too cumbersome. Don't do it that way. And if you start by looking at how this is changing things at an institutional level, and you can see how that will come down and eventually technology products are going to reach users through companies like Alvier translating those benefits into user experiences, you can kind of see that the course is set. I think on that question about real value and thinking about crypto and blockchain, I would make two smaller points. The first is don't discount too much the fact that crypto makes it possible for people to trade, take risk, and speculate. I mean, this is actually pretty cool when you think uh, 20 years ago, if you wanted to trade stocks, you had to pick up the phone and hopefully call a broker and tell him to go call his guy in New York to go down in the pits and take a ticker tape. We're not that far removed from people literally standing in a pit shouting at each other to do trades. And so don't discount the fact that it makes trade and risk transfer more accessible as a feature. Some people call it a bug. And when there's high, high, high volatility, it does look like a bug. But I kind of see it as a feature sometimes. And also, I would say just because it doesn't make sense to a person doesn't mean that the whole idea is bunk. You might sit there and say, why is somebody paying $100,000 or more for a picture of an ape? And the thing is, <laughs> I mean, I agree. I don't really care. Most of my pictures are reproductions, like they're open source, <laughs> those kinds of things. So I don't really get it. But just because I don't get it doesn't mean that the value isn't there for somebody else. And if you think of identity in a digital era, I know people who reserve email addresses for their kids. Like before their kid is born, they're like, I know the kid's name. I'm going to reserve kidsname at gmail.com. And that seems pretty normal to us. Like, that's not too shocking. And then if you think of how something like NFTs can tie into a digital identity or ownership of a digital identity, ties into that idea of digital plus conspicuous consumption, I don't think it's too far of a leap to see where users may value this differently than the way that we currently think about or model value. I want to jump in and just give a little bit of a perspective on the idea of value and innovation in the idea of value. In the early 20th century, there was an art collector named Gertrude Stein. She was the most prolific and risk-taking art collector living in Paris in the early 1900s. And she went to a exposition in the Grand Palais in Paris where they had an exhibition of art. And there was one picture, and most of it was pretty traditional art that was uh, figurative and uh, naturalistic, even maybe somewhat impressionistic, but nothing radical. But there was one painting there that was called The Lady with a Hat. I invite everyone to look it up by an artist named Henri Matisse. That was a non-realistic, non-naturalistic painting of his wife wearing a hat with all these crazy blue colors and stuff. And she bought it. Everybody thought she was crazy. 
of course, we know where Henry Matisse is today. And it took a while to figure out that her vision of buying an ape of its day in a digital format became worth basically priceless, right? You know, and if you think about generally the evolution of art, for example, in the early 20th century into cubism and other types of things that people didn't really understand. But smart people saw the vision of the future and collected it. I'd like to ask one more question just as we complete this great conversation, and that is... I'm going to ask everybody to make a prediction. How long is the nuclear winter of crypto market going to last? So I think we got like a year and a half. Why? I'd say. Why do you feel that? I'm saying feel because it's probably a feeling more than anything else, but maybe not. I just feel that things typically take longer than you think initially. And I don't know, you know, maybe Aaron says five years here, so I could be way off, but... I feel like in a year and a half, we'll see some sort of movement to the positive side. I think a year and a half is pretty fair. The one, historically, and it really matters what areas of the sort of the economy this will affect. Absolutely, crypto is the canary in the coal mine. And of course, what that means is more to come. I was just looking at my equity last week, and it actually is a roof just painted a roof down and now it's not even flat. It's a roof. So I think that a year and a half, Aaron, how wrong are we? I'm not going to caveat this at all, just for fun. Bitcoin sets a new all-time high on 10 August 2024. I would say if you look at the uh, charts of the NASDAQ in the fall of 2000 and 2001, you're talking about a lot more time. And even if you condense it because everything's accelerated, I would give it five years. I know everybody doesn't want to hear that. No, the great thing about going longer is if you're wrong, nobody cares because they've got a ton of money. Exactly. (laughs) And with that, I want to thank everybody here on the panel, starting with my co-founder and partner, Pedro Silva, to Aaron Cruz, and always to my producer extraordinaire, as I call you, Jay Sailing, and thank you for listening. Yeah, thank you. Embedding the Future of Finance is brought to you by Alvier, the leading embedded finance technology platform that allows the world's top brands to do more for their customers, fans, and employees. For more information, check us out at alvier.com and follow us on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter for the latest updates, guides, and more.